Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Well, hello there, music nerds. How's it going out there? Welcome back to season four of the podcast. This is episode number 99. Yeah, that's right, 99. Coming up on the big milestone of 100, which is totally crazy and cool. Thank you once again for listening and joining me. I would like to thank our sponsors for each episode, Union Tube and Transistor, making wicked pedals and amps and all kinds of crazy stuff, and Black Mountain Picks, who are making... Very cool spring-loaded thumb picks. And I love what both those companies do, and I appreciate their support in keeping this podcast flowing. And uh, please check us out on Facebook and Instagram. The handle is Makers and Shakers Podcast. And our new website is makersandshakerspodcast.com. You can get some T-shirts there and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please do that if you haven't already. Um, If you don't mind going over to Apple Podcasts and leaving a review, that's always much appreciated. And as you well know, the show is essentially listener-supported, and I could use your help to keep things going. If you're a fan of the show and you enjoy hearing these episodes and would like to support it financially, that is always welcome. You can do that by going to the website at makersandshakerspodcast.com, and in the top right corner is a donate button, and at that point you can... Uh, Either make a one-time donation or you can subscribe to our Patreon page. And as a little bonus to Patreon subscribers, I do a video series where I pull up tracks of songs that I've done and just talk through them and discuss a little bit about the process and all that, and it's a lot of fun. However, I have been neglecting that lately, which is a drag, but the reason for that is because I'm moving. And um, I'm actually not moving far. I'm moving 
within Nashville, but I don't know where to yet. <laughs> so everything is a little bit in uh, shambles right now. We, we've moved out of our house. We're trying to sell it, uh, have not sold it yet. So we don't have a place to go. We're living in our house with no furniture in it, basically. And my studio is empty. So I'm renting a studio. Well, I'm renting a corner of a studio. It's great, actually. It's called the Studio Nashville. It's a lovely studio here in town, in Nashville, obviously, run by an engineer named Brooke Sutton. And it's the place that the Wood Brothers also are partly responsible for and work and record out of here. So all of us are sort of jumping into this space and making it work between us. And it's very cool. And I really appreciate those guys and and letting me carve out a little corner of their world for myself. So that's where I am right now. And that's where this show is coming to you. And that's where I continue to work. I'm doing a lot of this Henhouse Express recording still, which is like remote recording for people that have songs that they want to get recorded at this time. And that's been a great way for us to both stay busy, but also connect with a bunch of new people and meet folks and play on a bunch of cool music. And uh, yeah, we, we sort of leave it open to anybody that has songs that they want to record. So if you're interested in doing anything like that with us, come and hop on. And you can get info on the Henhouse Express at stevedawson.ca. So anyway, that's sort of what's happening with me. It's a little it's a little crazy right now. I would like to thank some financial contributors from the last couple of weeks who have helped out, and I greatly appreciate their support. They are Larry Soule, John White, Rolf Ahrens, Ethan Collister, Michael Sapien, and Daniel Foley. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. Y'all are cool. So the other thing I just wanted to mention is uh, if you're a subscriber to the show, you would have got a episode of a new podcast that I've put together. So this is something that I, I actually did it uh, almost a year ago in Vancouver. We recorded this thing, and it's called the One Life Podcast. So I wanted to take the stories of this guy that I've worked with for years, Jim Burns, who, if you're from Canada, you have undoubtedly heard of him. If you're from elsewhere, you may not have, because he doesn't really travel to play music outside of Canada that much. But around the West Coast and stuff, he's a bit of a legend, amazing blues singer. And uh, he's from St. Louis originally, and just has an incredible story. And he's a great storyteller, too. And I've made seven records with him over the years, and I just wanted to uh, hear him tell his stories, but I wanted to surround it with music. So we improvised music for many hours, me and my crew in Vancouver. And then it, I just kind of sat on it for a while because I didn't have time to deal with hours and hours of content. So I finally had a bit of time in in the pandemic to put it all together, and now it's all together, and it's coming out in October. So it's called The One Life Podcast featuring Jim Burns, and you, you can subscribe to it now on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and it will come out on October the 12th, and all the episodes are just going to drop at the same time. So if you subscribe now on October the 12th, all the episodes, I think there's 10 of them, will come plopping down into your lap. So please do that if you're interested in such shenanigans. All right, so today's episode, episode 99, with Keith Scott. So Keith Scott, this is, a, he's a, this is an interesting guy. So he has been Brian Adams' guitar player basically since day one. Um, well, not exactly, because Brian made a, a record without Keith way back in the, I don't know if it was the late 70s or early 80s, but that one aside, Keith has played on everything that Brian Adams has done ever since. And uh, he's had that gig. And I just find that I find it so fascinating that somebody can have a gig, like a solid, amazing gig for so long 
and uh, be able to hold it together and and do a really good job. And that's what Keith has done. So I got to tell you, like back in the in the '90s when I was starting out in Vancouver, there was a scene, sort of a like a a bluesy kind of scene that a fellow named Tony Robertson was the was the figurehead of and he ran a jam at the at a place called the Yale which was the blues bar of Vancouver but he also had this band called the Vaqueros that would play around the Yale and he had this other gig at a place called Hogan's Alley and uh, he would play there regularly and have guests and I would go down quite frequently and there would be great guests like Dave Vidal or Robbie King or some of these great musicians around Vancouver and get to see a lot of people that way. And one of the guests one week was Keith Scott. And Keith was a bit of a enigma at that time because it was commonly understood around the Vancouver scene that he was a monster guitar player, but nobody ever got to see him play. And so this gig happened at Hogan's Alley and I went to see him and it was Keith Scott sitting in with the Vaqueros uh, down there for two nights. And I just remember it was me and like 12 people. I remember, you know, some of the people that were there. And it was, for me, it was like up there with seeing Jeff Beck or Stevie Ray Vaughan. It was mind-bogglingly good. He, he had such finesse and tone and taste. And it was just an unbelievable night of music. It blew my mind. And I had no idea that he could play like that. All I'd ever heard was, was him playing on these Brian Adams songs where he plays you know, six or eight bar solos and some great parts and stuff like that. But he never got a chance to stretch out at all, of course. And so this night was all about guitar for him, and it was amazing. It blew my mind and really stuck with me to this day as being one of the guitar highlights of my young life. And so I thank Keith for that, and uh, I wanted to have him on the show to talk about his history and just being in the studio making massive records that have been gigantic, enduring hits and his part in that and kind of how they came together. And I just thought it would be really interesting to hear from him about that. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Keith Scott. Hi, Keith. Hi, Stephen. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Okay. It's a sunny day in California. What can I tell you? Is it? It's always that, isn't it? Well... Not always, but uh, today's cold, actually. <laughs> you get in the winter, it goes down in the low 30s, so it's not normal, but uh, it's it's nice. I, I, it kind of reminds me of Canada, so there you go. <laughs> Thanks for doing this. I, 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 I know I haven't talked to you for a very long time, but um, I thought this would be a good way to catch up while we're talking, oh, perfect. talking music. Perfect. Um, yeah, no, it's great, and I appreciate the interest, and uh, you know, we'll fire away, and we'll have, have some fun, and all right, and talk. And I, I think uh, just to remind you, I I believe the last time we saw each other was at that YPO function, and it was you were with your partner uh, Zubo. Is that right? Is Jesse, that you say it? Jesse Zubot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, it was amazing to watch you guys, and that was when. Uh, Jim was there with uh, Long John Baldry, and I don't right. think he was around much long after that. I think he had left us, so I was—I'd never met John before, and uh, I know lots of people that played with him and and spoke very highly of him and everything. So it was kind of a thrill for me to meet him too. So what a character, man! He, oh gosh, yeah, he, he had, had some stories. stories. Man. <laughs> oh man, for for days, like the the birth of rock and roll kind of stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so here's the deal: when I was starting up playing around Vancouver, which is where I grew up, there was an understanding amongst all of my friends of my age 
that you were like the total badass guitar player in town, but it was totally based on rumor and legend because none of us ever got to see you play anywhere. And then <laughs> I saw you at Hogan's Alley with the Vaqueros. I don't know if you remember that gig, but that was like in the early 90s probably. And yes. it, it totally blew my mind. Honestly, one of the most memorable nights of guitar I'd ever seen. And I think you were supposed to do a second night there, and I was going to go to that. But I th- I think it got kiboshed maybe by Bruce Allen. Like maybe he stepped in and said, you can't do it. <laughs> that's what I heard anyway. No, I, I don't no, know. no, no. <laughs> Bruce doesn't give a shit what I do, honestly. <laughs> he just wants me to go away. No, that's funny. And, and let me guess, was that at the Puccini's place? That place yeah. that on Main Street? Yeah, it was called, oh, Ho- gosh, yeah. It was called Hogan's Alley, and it was Tony Robinson yeah, yeah. Had, had his band, The Vaqueros, and they used to get guests in, like Robbie Steiniger would come in or – or, um, you know, uh, Robbie King or whoever would come in and play. And, and you were one of the sure. guys. I mean, I, I grew up there too as well. I was born there and yeah. I grew up uh, proximity of 33rd and Main, which there was this sort okay. of big housing project there. I actually grew up in the southern part of Vancouver towards uh, like Victoria and Marine Drive. Where, and then my mom and, and my father split up when I was quite young. And she was kind of forced to find social housing. So they took her four kids, including myself. And we were raised there. And I left there in my early 20s and kind of motored around the city until I was able to provide my own shelter. And I actually bought my own house at some point in, the, in North Van. After I'd worked with Brian a few years and things were getting a little better. So yeah, that's kind of my, my domestic story anyway. Right. There's a bunch of things I want to talk to you about specifically, but... One of them is like the, that era of Vancouver that you grew up in um, and, and the, like the live music scene and the bands that you were playing in. So like maybe tell me about your, some of your first bands that you played in, probably in high school or whatever, and then like into the early gigging years and where you were playing and what sort of bands you were in. Well, like most kids, um, yeah, you're right. Uh, met a couple of guys in high school. Uh, I grew up with a guy... Uh, a friend of mine, Craig, who, uh, and I was kind of um, reminiscing last night, thinking, okay, if you ask me about something, I'm trying to recreate the scenario in my mind. Most of my friends around, I guess around seventh, eighth grade, around then, they all had older brothers. Um, and their older brothers always seemed to have a small acoustic guitar in the corner of their living room somewhere. Sure. Uh, we were pretty young and we didn't have much money. So getting a guitar was like, wow, okay. And a bit abstract for us. So, you know, I would go to their house and wait around for the guy to tie a shoe or whatever. And I'd sort of go lean over and sneak over and play a few notes on the guitar. I thought, oh, that's pretty interesting. I can play Louie Louie, da, 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 da. And, you know, I saw that the mechanics of it, I could sort of fashion things out of single lines and that. And it was sort of vaguely interesting. And I, even my own cousin who lived in Vancouver, uh, I would go visit them with my mom, my mom's sisters, and uh, he had a guitar. And he was, I think, a year younger than me. But he never played it. And I would go sit, and I'd take the guitar while they were out in the back at the, having the barbecue. And I would sit on their front porch, and there's a picture of me. I'm probably about 10 or 11 years old. I'm actually trying to play this guitar. I'm pretty sure I couldn't very well, but... <laughs> I was certainly interested, and that kind of got me going. So it was more my friend's older brothers. So inevitably, by the time we got to our middle years in high school, uh, 
you know, we were meeting up with people. You meet, oh, a drummer. Wow, he's got his own drum set or something. And he was really good. And I was always seemed to be playing catch up with guys that had been playing earlier than I had. They had four or five years. And there was a bass player, there was a drummer, there was a bunch of guitar players. As a matter of fact, um, it was a guy two years older than me in high school. And uh, he was kind of like the legend of our area. It was Harris Van Berkel. I don't know if you know him. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, he was. T- he went to Tupper My School in Vancouver, and okay. he was kind of wow, Harris. You know, he was the guy. And anyway, I ne- funny enough, I never met him then. <laughs> it was only till much, much later, and uh, and he was attending something I was at a, a theater in Vancouver, and he actually said hi to me. But uh, but anyway, this is kind of what like the background. There was always a bunch of guys that were way, way better than you, and you always felt like they didn't want you to play because you couldn't, you sucked or whatever. You that's know, what, and, that's what you need, right? True. You need you need people to kick your ass when you're young. Absolutely. You need a, uh, something to aspire to. So even by the time we got to my I mean, last two years of school, I had managed to hook up with a bass player friend of mine who originally played guitar, but he moved to bass. And another guy who kind of wrote songs and sang, and we all liked the same music. We just had to find a drummer. <laughs> we couldn't find a guy that really? we thought would keep time. Yeah. So we just put an ad. We put an ad in the paper, and a guy showed up from Burnaby one day, and he kind of fit the bill, you know, he's, he was a drummer, but you know, and we had the, we had the, the basics. We had bass drums and two guitars and one microphone and a guy could sing sort of. And anyway, I thought you were going to tell me that, uh, that Pat Stewart came through your door answering the ad. <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I wish he would have light, lightened up the room, but uh, Pat, Pat's great. And I love him so much. Anyway, he just did a gig with us in Saudi Arabia, filling in for Mickey because Mickey didn't want to go. So anyway, um, anyway it's, and it kind of goes from there. And we put this band, we played music that we wanted to play. We played old Pink Floyd, yeah. Sid Barrett, Darrett, <laughs> Pink Floyd, we played Alice Coop, old Alice Coop. We played lots of David Bowie, you know, all uh-huh. kinds of stuff that we were that cared about. Tell me a bit more about what your earliest influences were, like who, as far as like actual guitar players that you were into at that point. Well, I mean, the first thing that you see when you're 10 years old in 1964, you see the Beatles and, sure. you, and you're absolutely blown away by these they look like aliens to another planet uh, to us and you know and then i, I think uh, along with that society and culture and art and everything really took a step forward you know in a very you know open yeah. way and we kind of follow along say well i'm i'm a boomer that's I'm a, a classic one because i went through and watched go out of the conservative i was born in 54 so i watched it go out of that really sort of semi conservative sort of social thing, scene into this whole like wow and my parents were terrified because guys had long hair and drugs and all that and you know it was just this whole shift that was happening and i was just this is awesome and uh, and so i kind of everybody's kind of following the path of they kind of sort of with the the focal point of a lot of it and we grew up with them and the funny thing is that their whole their whole being was like the early 60s and they were done in seven eight years seven eight years i know that's my and it was i mean that's how long it takes mutt lang to get a drum sound so i mean (laughs) (laughs) okay don't record you can edit that out i love Mutt Lang. amazing amazing guy and i love him Uh, anyway uh, it's just it's a at that time it seemed like eternity but it was really a special time for us and propelling us more into wanting to be players i think you know and all that so um yeah so things like the beatles were the and then the whole watching all the the new bands that were coming out and then uh 
Cream was one, you know, Jimi Hendrix, obviously, but he was like so advanced in our eyes from right. every level is the composing side, the sounds. And yeah. we thought, well, we just got a crappy little series guitar. We're never going to be able to do that, you know, whatever. Did you get a chance to see any of those bands in Vancouver? No, no, I never, I never did. I, they were around. The first band I saw, my sister bought me a ticket. I think it was 15 or 16. And I saw Creedence Clearwater and the Coliseum uh, with the hockey team played had just opened. And it was the, I think the first show of the summer and she got me tickets for my birthday. And I thought, okay, that was great. And you know, it was pretty far away, but you could see the whole vibe. And, and I thought, wow, this is like something else. Yeah. And again, another thing that drew you in. So once we got hooked up with our buddies in school and all that, the talk would say, oh, so-and-so is going to be here next month. Let's go get tickets. Of course, you could get a ticket for about 5 or $6 in 1969 and 70. Mm-hmm. So Led Zeppelin would come and they played the Gardens that was off, the, off the first second record. And, um, Did you see them? Uh, and then we saw it. Yeah, I saw them, the second leg of the the first tour, and it was, yeah, it was incredible, and it was all so new, and wow, what's he doing? How's he getting all those bizarre sounds? And yeah, as you investigate more, you sort of see that it's it's more than a little bit, not so crazy, but, you you know, at that time, it was like Mars, you know, wow, this is amazing. And then we saw things like Edgar Winter, I saw Chicago off off their second record, I was a huge horn band fan. That might have come from my dad because he was a big band fan and okay. he played like Stan Canton and all that and Artie Shaw and all that stuff. When, oh, so you had a lot of, you, you had some jazz going on around the house. Oh yeah. And then, you know, that was kind of in the background. And then at, when I was a senior in high school, I started digging things like Miles Davis and John Coltrane and uh-huh. getting more into that. And once you, of course, once you move there, pop music and rock music seems, uh, you know, it's not as important. So uh, to me, because it was so much more depth and in, in, in improvised music that yeah. way. And anyway, you start, you, your, your serious stuff was that, you know. And I remember my routine was, in, especially my senior year, I would go to high school, come back and and I'd come back into my room and where I live and I'd turn on my FM radio, which everybody, that's all we had. And I would just let the DJs go, especially on a Friday night. And I had my Japanese Les Paul copy <laughs> that I bought at San Francisco Pawnbrokers on Hastings nice. Street. And I would kind of, and I would ear train, I would just play along to whatever it was, not having no, that you'd hear, okay, it's an E. You just kind of try and follow the changes. And it was kind of like playing in a band, but you just, the band was on the radio. And that's kind of, so I got started learning how to improvise along with songs. Were you completely self-taught? Pretty well, yeah. I mean, I, I played flute in the high school band because <laughs> um, I wanted to do something as an elective that was at least remotely meaningful. Yeah. And it read in C, so I could sort of sight read a bit then. And, okay. and you know, it's like four or five flute players, so I could hide behind the good ones. And, <laughs> um, and there were several that were way better than me. But I enjoyed the class, and it was, at least you were doing something that you liked, you were playing music. So uh, so I did that, and then, uh, but I am basically self-taught. But I I used to kite books from the library at school all the time, and theory and stuff, and take them home and look at them. And I had instruction books, and so I was I was learning through the books. I never had a teacher, uh, which I kind of regret in some ways because I know that uh, when it comes to certain harmonic uh, concept ideas, and we want to get over those humps where you're applying it to the fretboard, and it would have really helped to have a guy saying, "No, no, it's yeah. not that complicated. Just do this," you know. And then you go, "Oh gosh, you're enlightened." But I, um, at that time, I, I just I didn't have that kind of commitment. But I love 
all kinds of music. I love classical music. Um, even today, I just went and saw the Sixth Symphony by Beethoven you know, uh, a week and a half ago in San Diego. It was amazing. So um, I, I love everything. But I, I guess that's what I started to do. By the time I got to be a senior, I was loving pretty well everything and, and studying everything and seeing how it worked. And, mm-hmm. um, but, but ultimately, as a performer, you wanted to perform rock music because that was the most exciting and sure. had the most energy. And I think I was leaning that way. And then I, I we used to work part-time at the Pacific Press, my uh, uh, high school friends on the weekends. And the way we talked about, we talked about Deep Purple and stuff. Like Richie Blackmore was another guy because uh, he was this dynamic showman and he was pretty flashy. And it was pretty straight ahead rock stuff. Yeah. I thought, wow, this is Yeah, because you could, you could hear and it and you could probably do it, right? Like it's not, he's not the most like harmonically or technically advanced, but he's just got that power and soul or whatever. Exactly. So, and he had the flamboyant thing, you know, where you run the guitar up against the amps and all that anger, you know, hidden anger stuff that you get to do. Yeah, that speaks to you when you're 16 too, right? Yeah, I know. I just wanted to be able to go and be physical with it and have fun <laughs> and, and goof around and throw the guitar around. And, uh, and, then, and of course, we were heavily into the Bowie music thing, like the Ziggy era with <laughs> Mick Ronson's very tasteful playing and um, yeah, things like that. Once we started to perform on, like we'd get a gig once every month and a half in a church or something on a Saturday night. And we thought, okay, great. And we, we went down and auditioned for one of the strip bars, the syndicate or something downtown. Oh, yeah. And it was really creepy. And I thought, uh, I don't think I can do this, you know. <laughs> um, by the way, it was $300 a month for seven sets a night and all this kind of oh, stuff. Oh, my God. Like, okay, no. no, it was terrible. And I said, no, I'd rather just not do that. So we kind of put that aside. But the guy I was playing with um, – Daryl, he went on to form his own kind of prog rock band, and they got signed. And Bruce Fairman produced, and they're called Strange Advance. Oh, and they yeah. had, uh, yeah, they had some songs on the radio. And they did okay, and uh, you know, I, I, thought, I thought that was pretty cool. That when I came time for me to leave that, which was another story where a couple guys in the band in my high school would sneak into the bars downtown, and they brought these two guys to one of our church gigs, and. It was a guitar player and the drummer, and I said, oh, what would you be doing? He goes, oh, I was down at the so-and-so, uh, wherever he was drinking, and he said, and they were coming to see us, and they watched us play a couple sets at this church, and the drummer said, listen, why don't you open up for us down at the garage downtown next Monday, and, uh, and you can come and get some experience and see what a club is like. Mm-hmm. And we looked at each other, and I said, wow, are you kidding me? Like the, <laughs> and that time, the, I don't know if you remember a place called the Body, sh- not the body shop. The love affair. That's oh where yeah. That the love affair was originally a rock room, and it was called the garage, and a lot of a lot of bands played there. So here we go. We hike our gear down on that Monday. We play for twenty minutes. Yeah. And the bass player of the band that asked us to do this pulled me aside and said, "Listen, we're going to fire the guitar player. Would you want to audition?" I was like completely taken by surprise. I had no idea. And I, after a while, I put pieces together. I said, oh, this whole ruse was just to see how I would do in a nightclub. <laughs> so, and I said, well, 
uh, wow, how do I tell my friends, you know, from eternity? But I could see in my back of my mind that this was an opportunity to jump a step ahead and get into a working situation. I was 18 years old. Anyway, I, I, I agreed. And he said, you got to keep it quiet because it doesn't work out. We can't lose our guitar. Player. We still have lots <laughs> right. of gigs this month. I said, okay, okay, I'll shut up. So I went the next week and they, I played a couple songs and they, they all said, you're hired. So at 18, I was going, Jesus, I got a, a gig. I wasn't even old enough to be in the clubs at, at that point. So, so what, what, was the na- what was the name of that band? That was called the Hanley Page Group. And they... A couple guys from Prince George, they were brothers, and they were into English sort of rock, uh, you know, original sort of imagery. And, and they looked at a map, and they saw a name Hanley Page, and they okay. called, oh, Hanley Page sounds like, you know, whatever. And, and they, they had the band, it was already established, and they had a singer, uh, a, a guitar player, a singer, a bass player, and a drummer, and I filled the lead guitar role. And my first gig was at the Old Cave opening up for some rockabilly review from mm-hmm. Seattle. And I was terrified because I was like, Shh. you know, you just, you know, you, it, everything kind of comes down. And all the, time, the bass player say, it's okay to lift your head and look at the audience. <laughs> I was scared of making a mistake and I just wanted to not lose the cake. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and that kind of went from there. And I, and we worked with these guys I worked with them for a couple of years. We went to Toronto trying to get signed. We, I, they wrote some music, uh, did a little bit of TV. It didn't pan out. They fired the singer, went down to a four-piece. The singer went and formed his own band called Zingo. Mm-hmm. And I, I left the sinking ship that was the first band and joined them. And that's kind of where I was able to exert a little more influence and start oh. writing things. Okay. So all the, the sort of mythical thing that you were talking about earlier in the conversation was maybe based around that because I pushed them to try things like fusion jazz stuff. And, and I said, let's, let's just do it. Let's try this. Let's try a Beck song. Let's try, you know, Tony Williams, you know, blah, blah. and so, I mean, we we're pretty good, but we were trying drummer could sort of handle a lot of it. So he, yeah. you know, we had, we had the bones of being able to kind of do those kind of things. Of course we play the songs in a, club in Nanaimo and they'd be throwing vegetables at us and long walking out but we didn't care you know we just said fuck it we just yeah. want to play one one song of the set that's meaningful to us and then yeah. we'll play uh, stones and stuff and that's kind of what we did so, so anyway. what kind of what kind of touring were you doing with those guys was it like across Canada or was it more regional well I think it was more regional and what made that west coast of Canada unique to me and I never seen it since except for maybe in Ontario was uh that you were able to work in a different cabaret, what they call them, or nightclub or pub, virtually through the whole province of BC and Alberta, and not play the same place twice in three months, which I don't think that exists anymore. It but, sure doesn't. Uh, I, I caught like the tail, I caught probably actually the last year of that. I had a band in the summer and, and we went out and did basically that, like where we were playing six or seven nights a week and playing some new kind of shitty pub in the middle of nowhere, but I could see how you could do that for years, really. And the money was pretty good. And, you know, it was an experience. Absolutely. So you, you, I was actually making a living. I wouldn't say I was making lots of money, but it wasn't too bad. You know, we had to be careful with equipment. The truck broke down, equipment died, and you, you had to all ante in for it. But it was classic sort of band stuff. And, um, yeah, so we did that for several years. And What about recording? Did, did you go into the studio with, with any of those bands? Yeah, the first band I did right, virtually right away because they they saw that and and 
that it was necessary. If you didn't write music, you were going to be doing this for nothing for the rest of your life. You had to take a step forward, and that would be to write songs. Yeah, and that's what they did. Um, we tried to write music, but uh, inevitably, like with most groups of four or five people, everybody's got a different idea where they should go. So sure. there was a lot of push and pull in the first band about the bass player wanted to play more funky stuff because disco was starting to come into fashion. He thought that would be a, a better idea. Add, uh, marry that with rock sort of chords, mm-hmm. mm, whatever. I, I'm sure you know there was stuff that like, but we couldn't really make it work. The next band was me trying to, uh, you know, it, like fusion style stuff, but with lyrics and a, and a melody, you know, so, mm-hmm. <laughs> which again was a challenge. And then the uh, the keyboard player, he wrote more straight ahead stuff, more melodic. I felt you know that was more indicative of what was going on and probably had a better shot of getting any kind of attention. So yeah, by the second band, it was all about that. And I remember we were touring in Ontario, the second band, 1976, which is the year I met Brian. And he was filling in for the singer in Sweeney Todd. He was right. doing that for experience and trying to get his own songs covered, whatever him and Jim had started writing. Anyway, they, uh, I remember going and we saw this band, Max Webster in, uh, in a club there and Kim Mitchell and I had yet to meet him, but we went and saw him and it was like life changing for all of us. And we kind of just, they came out and it was like all dressed in white and it was this forceful, melodic, heavy rock riff oriented thing. It was all their own stuff and it was really inspiring. And we thought, okay, this is, this is, we got to drop what we've been doing, being a Bad Stones cover band <laughs> and Bad Jet Beck fusion copy, and start to do things, you know, and do and get going. We can do it, you know. It doesn't have to be all night. We can. This is where we have to start. And I think it was a turning point for us going to oh, see interesting. these guys as a band. And we just said, let's do it. Let's go. And I remember the first song I wrote with them, and I thought, I'm just gonna. The first thing that comes to my mind, and whatever it was, and I wrote it all down, and I just faked it, and that kind of thing. And that kind of got it going. And then you saw, once you got a song and you were playing it, I can't believe this came together. I mean, it's terrible, but it's better than nothing. A little bit of momentum never hurt, right? That's sort of what gets a lot of things going, I find. Yeah, I I think you just got to go and do it. And and even Brian admits that, you know, and he says, I I was asked to write the second Sweeney Todd record. I had never written a song in my life. I just went and did it. And, you know, I didn't care. And and it wasn't great, but at least I did it. And once I saw that I could at least perform the function, I thought, I just got to get better. You know, right. and just be more be more discerning about what gets out. And once he, of course, hooked up with Jim, the balance, um, he had a really good partner and he could bounce I'll ideas say. off. So, so tell me yeah. about, uh, like, where did you first see Sweeney Todd? And were they a pretty straight-up rock and roll band, or, or did they have a, a sort of different edge to them? Well, when I saw them, it wasn't Brian. It was the original guy, Nick, and Jim, the, the guys that wrote the music for them. And... Yeah, it was cool. I mean, they were they were they were starting to do the kind of the same thing. Everybody that had any kind of vision or any kind of um, will to keep going was understood that you had to make your own music, and they put like that first record out. and And then at one point, they were going to add a, another person. They were a four piece band or five piece band, and they wanted to add a sixth person. And I got actually auditioned for them, hmm. <laughs> but inevitably. Uh, um, a few weeks later, they got an offer to sign just the guitar player and Nick, and uh, they they left, and then they split, 
and then it was just the three guys. But I, I think they were touring with either expanding as a band, adding extra musicians, or just leaving. And they eventually they just left. So anyway, so they yeah they were kind of interesting because at that time very few artists got a shot, and it was so rare to hear about a Canadian artist of any kind getting any kind of like record deal or anything. It was like mm-hmm. a, the holy grail for most of us. And were they an Ontario band? No, they were from Vancouver. Oh, they were, okay. From the suburbs. Okay. Yeah, yeah from Richmond or something. <laughs> anyway, so that's kind of, that That was my, I didn't really have much to do with them except for that little incident. Yeah. And, and then I and then I heard Brian uh, was filling in for Nick as a singer, and I met him in Toronto through a friend. He was, I think, 17 or 18. I was 22. Yeah. And uh, we just kind of, you know, social life shouldn't much of that. Wow, this guy's insane energy. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but uh, when I went home after we'd been out, we went out there for a couple of months. One summer, I just played every club like you do. And yeah. he went home in the fall, and and then he would just kind of call me out of the blue, and he'd say, "Hey, what are you doing?" I said, no, "I'm going to go do a jingle down at Pinewood, and um, let's go for pizza." You know, and and I didn't. I thought, okay, he's just kind of hanging out, and he would. You know, it, it, I watch him sing in this jingle with a bunch of, you know, the jingle guys that were in town. It was probably Robbie King playing piano and uh-huh. the Wade brothers and all them guys. And and then we go for pizza. But I thought, well, and, and, but I, I understood later, I think, in retrospect, that he was networking, which that term didn't exist then. But right. He was kind of just staying in touch with people if he needed, you know, if he needs stuff, you know. He wanted and, to see if, if you were the kind of guitar player he would hire for the next 45 years. <laughs> perhaps. Maybe you can see if I can sit in the room with this guy across from me, then maybe there's a hope, you know. And I, I think that is so much of it, you know. Yeah, man, totally. You in a room with, if a guy's really intolerable, then you think, I don't care how talented yeah. he is. If I have to be in the room with that guy half an hour, I'm going to kill myself. But <laughs> but no, we got along pretty well. So you mentioned um, doing jingles and stuff. Is that something that was also like a, a part, like were you getting some studio work around Vancouver? No, nothing at all, really. Oh, okay. I, um, it, it was, it was uh, to me, it seemed like two camps. You were either that or you were doing what we were doing, which was, performing five, six nights a week of other people's mm-hmm. songs and stuff. And that's what you committed to. And you had to be willing to travel. Of course, like I said, you had to go up to the Prince George and Prince Rupert and, yeah. and uh, to Alberta and stuff. And especially in the summer. And I don't think the jingle guys did that. They, their living was going to three or four places in the lower mainland yep. that they knew that they would do two or three times. a much like the, the local, they were the wrecking crew of Vancouver. Today. Right. And uh, the same, it was always the same guys. It was, a lot of them aren't around anymore. I mean, it's like, maybe like Duris or be Jim Valance on drums. It would be uh, uh, Doug on bass, Doug Edwards, or, and it was always the same guys, you know, uh, Terry, Terry Frewer, all these, and the guys over Griffith Gibson, all them guys. And you know, there was a core of people. And uh, you know, we got to know them over the years after you start to record a little bit with other sure. things, but uh but I was never part of that. I, I only did a few things um, with Jim when I started working with Brian. And I think Brian said, we need to get Keith more experience in the studio. So Jim would invite me down on certain things, low pressure ones. And I really valued that because it is a different world. And you yeah. really have to focus focus on other things. It's not just kind of think of who's singing and all that. So let's, go ahead. Let's talk about that a little bit because... I, I find it interesting that you mentioned Mick Ronson because to me, like 
you don't necessarily sound like Mick Ronson, but there is a similarity in, you know, the way that he was very present on those Bowie recordings and, and the way that you're very present on Brian Adams records. Um, can you tell me a bit about how you feel you evolved, especially like in your first years, uh, you know, doing some real records like you were with Brian and, and um, Jim Valance and, and just how you're playing evolved because I, re- I really want to understand how you how you changed and how you approached playing on songs like that in the studio yeah it's a, it's a good point you know like and then i use mick ronson as a reference because it wasn't about i'm gonna sound like mick which you know not many people do yeah. and it's about con- being in context with what was required at the time and uh, i think even bowie will say you know i was doing all this sort of uh it's like almost psychedelic rock thing, you know, with space oddity and all that. And I think he understood that he needed a, somebody to work with against when, like, because he had to go perform mm-hmm. and he needed a, a strong focal point, but somebody that was going to complement his music. And Nick was, he says, I found my Jeff Beck, you know, and uh, if you hear Bowie, we used to talk about Nick and he, he needed a complement to the music and, and maybe, I think Brian never used Mick Ronson as a reference, but he, I think he understood the same concept that he needed something to complement what he was doing. He, Brian can play a lot of this stuff himself. He's, you know, he can play those parts, but he needed a, an actual visual, a person like to help do that too. And yeah, I think it was like, it was like all the classic stereotypical relationships. It was Lennon McCartney, I would say Lennon McCartney or Keith and Mick and all that. They, they felt that that was a really good idea to try and go out and, and, represent when you when you go and say this is Brian's and this is his you know alter ego John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambor or whatever that was that situation and so and that was probably at the back of their mind saying okay let's let's do that you know and I use Mick as a reference only from a an like a performance kind of thing you know but I never I mean I learned every note he did but like you say I could I don't sound like I'm like I am I had to develop that. And the first few records with Brian, I think, well, who the hell am I? I don't sound like Jeff Beck. I don't sound like that guy. I think inevitably you just kind of fall into a certain thing and it kind of forms around you in some ways. And when I hear myself on the radio, I think, oh my God, that vibrato is just revolting, but it is who you are, you know, <laughs> so, yeah. or whatever, you know, every, everybody's different. And, and some things I'm really proud of and some things I'm, you know, I think, okay, it, it is, it is what it is. You know, it's, I don't know. But. Was Cuts Like a Knife the first record that you played on? With Brian, yeah. Yeah. The first one. So go back to that session for a bit and, and tell me, um, I'd love to hear how the how those records, especially in that era, like that's early 80s and, you know, things are changing in the industry and the way that records are being made are like so foreign to how we make records now, you know, way more time and detail and, and just the production values were way different. Um, tell me a bit about the process and how long it took and, and what you remember about those sessions for that record. Well, I never really had done a, a real true budget, you know, a label budget record. And, and we had rehearsals, you know, uh, they flew in the keyboard player from New York and the drummers from Connecticut, Mickey. And it was myself and this bass player that we'd just hired the previous year, uh, Dave and, and we kind of rehearsed. Brian and Jim had written, uh, demoed most of the songs. Uh, and so everybody got a cassette and you rehearsed. You know, okay, how am I going to fit? This is Brian playing guitar. I'm going to do this. I'm going to try that. Keep, yeah, and you had to kind of work out parts. So 
in those days, of course, like you say, you go and you record off the floor, five guys, in the, and that time was a little mountain studio. And uh, and then from there, that, that probably took a week or so, maybe 10 days to get the drum tracks. And then we took everything uh, about a month or so later to New York, to Power Station, and we did all the rest of the bits, like the singing and the guitar solos and acoustic parts or anything else that needs to go on. And and uh, that was it. So the record, probably 10 days of basics, another two weeks of overdubbing and mixing, and that's it. And away you go. So when you say basics, were, were you guys were playing in a room together, but you ended up uh, like redoing all the guitar parts, or was some of that stuff being kept? Some of the stuff was kept. I, uh-huh. I think... Uh, you know, we, we opted to go with the basic, but as long as you got the drum tracks and the bass and all that. So even I think some of the bass was overdubbed in the end. Just, you know, they, in the end they went, okay, let's try a different sound. And they would go in and redo the parts. So, uh-huh. um, How realized were those demos that you're talking about? Like, were, were they just song, like acoustic guitar and vocal? Or did they have sketches of guitar parts that you were supposed to get in on too? Um, no, they were pretty, for those days, they were relatively sophisticated uh so Jim, being a session drummer, he had a little, um, he had a setup in his basement in his house, and it was like a Fox, Fostex eight track reel to reel thing, you know. Yeah. And very, very limited. Uh, he would do two a stereo drum track. Brian and him, Jim would play bass. Uh, Brian would play a couple of guitar tracks, sing a couple of lines, and you know, have a six to eight tracks, and that's all you needed to get the idea across. I mean, there was no, there was no editing really to speak of. Uh, it was just. Here's the arrangement. Here we're going to do, and then you kind of go from there. So when you took that rough cassette of a sound like a little band playing in a room, you would kind of arrange the song in the rehearsal for the session. So before okay. the, the actual recording started, so it was, oh, let's add this, let's take this away. But generally, all the parts were there. The middle eight was there. Everything was there. So the song structure was all all there and fully written. For the most part, yeah. And then you were left to come up with the with your own guitar parts, obviously. Yeah, and in and even in those days, Brian would call me and he'd say, "Jim and I just put this idea down, come up to his house." So, like, cuts like a knife was. I got. I just found the cassette for it somewhere with the original demo. Really? Guitar solo. Yeah, it's funny as heck to hear. I, but the solo is quite different than the one I did in the demo. Anyway, but it's just I would go up and establish my voice at the demo stage, and it would like, okay, there, uh-huh. at least you got your foot in the door. So. Okay. It was, it was a learning curve, though. <laughs> How involved was the production side? So it was Jim Valance. I, I assume he was there, present at the sessions, right? And and Bob Clearmountain. Uh, Jim rarely was at the session because oh, okay. he he felt that if Bob's a co-producer with Brian, he did not want to be there because oh, okay. um, he did not want to ruffle anyone's feathers. And he, I think that was a really diplomatic and, a, and a, a sensitive thing to do. That's very Canadian of him. More more chefs, you just cause problems. Yeah. So, but what what happened was we do the tracks, and then Brian would play the for Jim over the way. He goes, "Well, you're missing the tombo and the third chord," <laughs> and then go back, and then Bob would go, "Oh fuck, you know who's producing the record?" So there was a little bit of friction okay. there. So he was but, still doing. But Jim it. generally stayed on. But okay. he generally was great. He stayed away from. Me. He said, "These are the songs. Just do them yeah. as close as you can." And and he was thrilled when he heard you know people like like Mickey playing him back, and because. He's a very good drummer, so he was really he was happy with the direction everything was going in, and there was a lot of energy. But the initial, I mean, for me, it was like just 
sitting in somehow and and the sound getting your sound so it works together yeah i guess in the end it, it's redundant because if you're going to redo them anyway it doesn't matter you're just going to go in but the, the important thing is to get the mood off the floor and mm-hmm. that, that's such a hard one to tap into sometimes and it's not happening it's not happening you just got to want so Tell- me about your sound like what kind of gear were you using in those days did you have a pretty limited <laughs> palette as far as equipment goes because it doesn't it sounds nothing. pretty we had really okay yeah. like like what yeah. were you using we had nothing. well i mean i probably had two or three guitars to my name a couple of amps i yeah. mean my stu- my stuff from the club days i had a high watt 100 head with two cabinets uh, i think we borrowed a music man uh, combo amp brian had uh I think he had a Music Man amp, and he had a JC120. You remember those? Oh, sure. Those and he had, a Mar- he had a Marshall 50 watt. That's what he had, and oh, it was nice. a generic one, and it, it was in bad shape. Our oh. sounds, Clear Mountain was like, "You guys got to get your shit together." He was horrified. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, we felt bad. But did you rent a bunch of stuff for that record, like in New York, when you were there, or did you just see, use we what did. you had? We did. Okay. We did, and, and Bob had a great connection being in New York, and he had a thing with SIR, and he would say, I need a Marshall, I need a blah, blah, I need this, I need that, and he, they would send stuff over, so we had good amps and cool. stuff. Our guitars were terrible. I had this Strat I bought off the wall along the grade in the 70s, and I gouged it, and I put a humbucking in it and yeah. changed a bunch of stuff, and it was horrible, but... <laughs> It worked for me. You know? yeah, <laughs> it was my, my Eddie Van Halen Frankenstein of a sort. But um, we used that a lot. That's a lot of the records in the early days. Uh, Brian had just got a Strat, a 60s Strat. And we bored there. I mean, uh, what's the guy in Chic? Uh, Nile Rogers had a closet full of stuff. And we just go sneak into his closet and steal stuff like Strats and stuff and record them. Oh, and, like he know. had a room at the, oh. at the, at the power station? He did. He cool. had a bunch of stuff. He was he was there, uh, you know, virtually like a resident. He worked there so much. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. But anyway, so we had a lot of people helping us that way. And a friend of ours was a collector in Vancouver. He would loan us things. So we had uh, this Candy Apple Red Strat, which I used on Reckless a lot. And, um, and they say, well, you can buy it if you want. And we always said, well, we don't, we don't care. <laughs> We're so stupid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we said, you can, 800 bucks, you can have this 64 Candy Apple <laughs> oh, Strat shit. that you used on all your seminal records and you don't want to buy it. And, I, and eventually Brian did buy things in the end because he didn't want them circulating. So, But he had like 80s Norland Les Pauls that were just 
really not very fun to play. Because <laughs> um, that's all we knew, you know? Yeah, we didn't sure. know anything about that stuff, you know? And then we, and so the early records were pretty limited gear. I mean, not, not a heck of a lot. Some of you had a twin reverb in there. I don't know. It, uh, I had a magic booster pedal, and then I would use these yellow DOD distortion pedals. We had a, I think we might have had a tube screamer by then, the early one. And yeah, there wasn't a ton of pedals in those days, I guess. Oh, gosh, no, no. We, ne- we never used, everything was kind of was dry, and then Bob would add his own ambience to it. He had all his little tricks when he went to mix. So, but, uh, so you did all the drums in Vancouver for that first record, moved to the power station, mm-hmm. and then, like, was it just you and Bob and Brian working on guitar sounds for, like, a week or something? Like, how did that actually go down? Yeah, that's pretty well it. We went there, and Mike Fraser was uh, assistant. He was assisting on those sessions then. Wow. He came with us. He'd never been to New York, and he was like 19 years old or something. Amazing. <laughs> and he worked out of Little Mountain because he knew all the edits were and everything. And, and he said, just bring Mike, and he, he knows the drills. So okay. um, we took him, and he, it was Mike, me, Brian, and Bob. Well, Bob lives there, and that was basically it. So, had, I mean, in the, on that record, it seems to me like you became, like you kind of found your voice as being this incredible economical rock guitar soloist. That's like super melodic and memorable. Like all your solos on that record are so badass and cool and, and short. Was that partly like clear mountain coaching you through the process or were you, were you like a one take wonder or what was going on with all that kind of stuff? <laughs> I wish I was a one day wonder. Um, no, I think it was a committee. And and what happened, like I said earlier, uh, we, a lot of it went down at the demo stage. So I had something, to, a sketch to okay. work from. Yeah. And Brian would say, just play this solo, but play it better. Or play it with Margaret or add something, you know, whatever. So okay. there was that side of it. Yeah. And then there was some tunes with nothing. And they would say, well, just come up with something. And as I just monkey around. And then Brian would say, do this. And then he would give you a lick. And then Bob would say, just play. He just turned the record on and whatever came out. And mm-hmm. so there was all different ways of doing it. But mostly we just, the template was made with the demo and we kind of worked with that. And I just took that and tried to make the sound bigger or something, you know. When your part was done, did you just leave and that was it and you never really heard it again until the record was finished? That's exactly it. I mean, it was, it was it. And he said, oh, now Bob's going to mix it. And then I remember driving on the Upper Levels Highway in, in like 1982. Yeah in the fall and the guy in the radio said oh and here's brian Adams' newest song cuts like a knife and it came on the radio and i holy shit i haven't even heard this yet and there it was and i and i pulled over the side of the road listening to it oh god that's terrible <laughs> 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 like my playing you know i thought oh the soul i, I felt like i was oh, I, I just wish i'd done you know you, you start criticizing i think relax man it's your first record and and anyway, Amazing. it is what it is. Yeah. But you're, you know, I think you, you know, your comment earlier is like, you start to find your voice. You start to hear your voice in context, and you go, okay, all right, I'm, that makes more sense now. So if it's working, uh, the singer or whatever the song, then, then you think you got a good path. You just keep exploring that. So hopefully it works. So that record comes out in whatever it was, 82 or 83. Uh, I was a little, little youngster. I mean, I remember hearing it everywhere. Um, How old were you? I, I was, well, I was born in 72. So uh, okay. you know, I was 10 when it came out. Um, wow, amazing. But it was everywhere, man. And th- that was like, you know, for me, like I remember <laughs> getting excited and wanting to play the guitar. So that was like, for me, what, what 
you know, maybe the Beatles were for you or something. Like that was a huge record. It was everywhere. And, uh, you know, it had cool parts on it. And that's interesting. I mean, I hear your take that, you know, that, that, that makes total sense. I mean, then here you are like, you know, a specialist in like vintage instruments, like the Weizenborn and that. It doesn't connect to what we did, you know, just to me, like right off the top, but it, it pushed you into exploring music, which I think was important, you know, it's fantastic. And I, and I hear that all the time, even today, like, a guy will come up to me in his twenties or his thirties and say, you know, I heard you when you came out and with into the fire or something, whatever. And, you know, it made me want to play guitar and I just say, it's been great. I go, well, that's fantastic. You know? And I think what more do you, what more do you need to know that if you're influencing people and, and making them get into music? It's fantastic. As a working musician, you're, you go from like slogging it out in shitty bars to, playing with, with, with Brian and I, I'd imagine you guys were playing kind of shitty bars too, right? Like at, at first, like, mm-hmm. was that, that just sort yeah. of continued. And then as that record gained traction, I'd imagine that things really changed pretty quickly. Can you tell me a, a bit about that? Um, you know, how that all went down and what you, what the experience was like for you as a musician? Well, and, and me being a side person, I wasn't like a signed part of a, of a band or anything like that. Once, we did that record and we toured. We actually were really lucky because we got an opening slot for this band journey all through the summer next the summer. And it was like three or four months and the exposure you couldn't have bought, you know, right. it was really great opportunity. We saw lots of people and they were at the peak of their career at that time, 1983. And so with that all happened in the whole year and then you come to the end of the year and it's like, okay, well now we got to do another one. <laughs> um, and then there's nothing for like six months. So I was wow. like, okay, so what, what did I do? I went back to my band I was with prior to that, which was a singer friend of mine. There was this band called Bowser Moon, and they were you know, a pretty great cover band and paid really well, and it was fun. And, and we just, it was really easy to do. So we threw that back together. And again, I went back to, like you say, shitty clubs. <laughs> but I really had fun in the clubs because we did really good business, and lots of people came out and... And I, I didn't mind at all. It was really simple. There was, there was no pressure but, right. uh, from that point on. So I went back and did a little bit of that. And then Brian and Jim, the whole time while we were on tour and stuff, he would fly back to Vancouver and try to write with Jim. Because he knew that another record ad was going to be asked from him. So they, they started to piece together Reckless. Were you thinking of this as like, this is going to take off and be what I do for a long time? Or were you just like, shit, I don't know, like this, it was like kind of a fluke and I, I may never do another record with this guy. Like, how did you feel as a side person? Secure or insecure or what? I don't think there's really any security and it, it goes right down to the artist because he doesn't know either. He, right. he just keeps going on thinking, okay, let's just keep going. I'm going to try to make, make more songs. And you realize it because even someone like Brian, by the time he'd done Reckless, he got to into the fire in the in like eighty six, and him and Jim were starting to have personal differences about stuff, and his writing started to you know start to become a little bit less frequent. So he was saying, "Geez, okay." And that record came out, and you could hear there was more you know the themes were a little more serious, and yeah, not yeah. like "Boy Meets Girl" and, and "Runs Away" and, and with a guitar, but it's. And then by the time that was done, we went into the fire. We realized, okay, we've gone into a little bit of a valley here because not only have we changed, but the business around us has changed mm-hmm. and people aren't as interested in what you're doing right now. So they've moved on to something else, whatever that was. The following record, it was we were going to just throw it out. And he took the record 
over to England and he wanted, he wasn't writing with Jim at all. Then they were on the outs mm. and he went to some songwriters. He met up with Mutt Lang and he played him this record that we had recorded with Bob Clearmountain. He goes, yeah, that's okay. You know, you probably sell a few copies, but I don't hear any hits. And he said, well, help me write some hits. He goes, I can't, I'm committed to some other artists, but he eventually talked Mutt into working with him and the whole project got shelved. So there from 88, until 1991, it was like ambiguity. We didn't know what was going to happen. Oh. Okay, here we go. We're going to make a record. It took me while well, I was at Mutt's house for a year doing all the overdubs and stuff. So, so which record is that? Waking Up the Neighbors. Oh, okay, three years of nothing, like no recording, no touring, nothing. Like, are are you just like on your own, or are you retained to be his guitar player, even though nothing's happening? Or like, what happens professionally for you in that time? Well, there's no retainer, first of all. Uh, you're kind of on your own. And I was doing enough with him uh, recording the songs that got shelved. I and mean, he still had to re- go do the work. And we do the odd gigs, you know, little things. So in 1980, we did a, a European tour in the summer and a bunch of other things. And the recording. 1989 was quieter. It was probably the quietest year I ever had with him. Uh-huh. <laughs> Save for when I moved south. And he went by himself about 10 years ago. Yeah, so there wasn't a lot, and I thought, okay, this this could really just disappear. I mean, depending, it's up to Brian, you know. Yeah. And then as soon as as soon as I we uh, in 1990, from all uh, virtually that whole year, I was recording, so um, and I, and being compensated for that. So right. I, I, things were looking good, and then knowing that you're working with a guy, that a producer that's probably going to get you some attention, and yeah. <laughs> you, you you felt like you were back on the horse again, and you know, there's a, you don't know, nobody's certain about anything. You just kind of go with your, with your gut feeling and you hope for the best. And we got really lucky with a single that just went crazy around the world. There was nothing else out of the, of like that of its time. So we got a break there mm-hmm. and then we finished the record and then Nirvana released, uh, Nevermind. And everybody from the eighties was instantly redundant. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so we, we, our timing wasn't terrible, but it wasn't great either. So, um, it, but it, it was, you know, and you look back, I mean, that was 30 years ago. My gosh, I, get that, I can't believe how much time's gone by. Let's talk about that record. Cause it had the huge hit. Uh, that was everything I do. I do it for you. Right. That was, and mm-hmm. that had a, that killer guitar solo of yours in it. But, um, let's Thank talk, ta- let's talk about that session with Mutt Lang. Like you mentioned that it went on for a year, uh, Tell me about his whole deal and, and how it was different from Bob Clear Mountain and, and what the process was like making that record. Well, I think like we talked, you see, Bob and when we originally did the first three records, it was five guys go in on the floor, record everything, try to keep as much as you can, yeah, and and then go back and overdub and maybe fix things and rearrange it, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's it, That process is kind of what we had been doing. With Mutt, it was all... Everything was kind of pre-done. The, the drums in that record were all Lin drums, save for some cymbal overdubs and that. Everything? So that, yeah, pretty well. Wow. Um, and the bass was key bass with, I think Larry Klein came in and played real bass for a little bit of it. But um, So Mickey Curry doesn't so, play on that record? No, wow. not until the next one. Oh. So, so we, I went in and it was basically, Brian had already spent months doing all his rhythm parts on the, okay. part, say the left side. And yeah. then I went and copied that and tried to copy his parts on the right side. So that was like, and the way Mutt worked at the time was 
he, he didn't want to work that hard. He'd been working all his life. He said, if I'm going to do this record, I want to do it on my terms. That means we work for a little bit. And then he would take an hour or two off and go in the garden. And he just wanted to live. He didn't mm-hmm. want to be stuck in front of speakers going, eh, eh, and I don't blame him because that's <laughs> the worst torture you can imagine. <laughs> Trying to get the power sounds and making it all work. And he had this concept where he would take the arrangement of the song and kind of write it out in bar form, uh-huh. get you to play a couple of passes. And then he'd go back, we call it the backwards completion principle, which was somebody's record name, I can't remember, the tubes or something. But he would go back on every bar and make sure it was completely and perfectly in time and in tune and drop you in, like record you and say, okay, just fix up this bar. Wow, wow. A bit of so you have to go and there's something about it or you'd add it and then you'd have another part. You'd come up with a part and you had to kind of invent a new part. And then just when you thought, there's no possible way you can fit any more music in this piece of this song. He would find something and he'd go play this and he'd count it in a funny way and you'd be trying to figure it and it would take just forever. But it was, and then you'd realize, Oh my God, how did he know that? How the hell did this guy know this? And I really had a lot of respect for him because all he was trying to do was make it more interesting. And I think when you use a drum machine and there's real strict time process and all that, the only way to make a song like a pop song like that interesting is to keep adding little bits, candy, as the song progresses. Sure. And when I studied what he'd done with other people, I saw that's what his method was. And Oh, I see. He's, and so when the second verse comes, he's added this bit to take you here. But by the last chorus, he's got you over here. And it's like he would just add things constantly to make it interesting for him. So Right. And once, once, once you got the what he was going for. At the first, I was like, oh my gosh, this is like Herculean amount of work. But uh, after a while, it got really good and we had a really great time just trying to come up with things. They just got to be able to spend the time, which a lot of people don't want to and right. don't have the means to. So, And we were fortunate. So You did. To be able to see that. Yeah. Because yeah. it was... So when you went into that session, were, were you aware that you were going to be doing it for like a year? No. <laughs> <laughs> I remember going, I'd gone there in July and I was there and we went, took a break to go play some gigs in South America in the fall. And I went back to Mutt's house after and I went going back into, at that time Mutt lived outside of London and uh, I would go out to his house for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday. And then the engineer would drive me back into the city and drop me off at this hotel he used to stay in and I would have the weekend to myself. Cool. And I would kind of, he'd give me some homework, like, okay, just come up with something for this or something. So I had my guitar with me in my, my room. And, but I remember coming back and the engineer says to me, are you okay? I said, no. I said, I've been here for eight months. <laughs> and, I'm not, and I said, I'm not even close to being done. He goes, really? I said, no, I look, look at how much more work we have. We haven't even finished the last five songs. We've got so much more work to do. I, I, I just... I'm not getting it. I just don't know what I'm doing. I'm terrible. He is. Listen, the guy in Death Leopard took three years to do his guitar parts. You're going to be out of here. You're going to be fine. Holy <laughs> okay. shit. <laughs> I'm so, not kidding you. So we, we were done within a few months. How, okay, tell me how I've never been able to possibly wrap my head around spending more than like two weeks on a record, on an entire record. So, I need to I need to know from your point of view, like how do you spend eight months doing guitars only on a record? Like what does that actually mean? Are you are you just trying 
like a gazillion things and a million different amp combinations? Are you are you doubling and tripling every single note? Uh, how how does it take that long? Yeah, I know it seems so bizarre to me now. Uh, I, I think when you're dealing with somebody that's so concerned with a certain kind of swing and time and against whatever he's programmed, uh, there's a certain way to do it. And if you're not used to it, it really takes so much. You have to keep trying over and over again to get one passage right, just so it sits in the bar right. Mm -hmm. Because we don't have Pro Tools. You can't move it. I mean, you could get this thing called a Russian dragon. You could sort of fake it, but it wasn't the same as we have now. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was just like, and then coming up with another piece. Okay, well, we've got the double for this. Let's double that again. So that's another few days' work, just to double the part you just did, because it's so physically challenging, whatever he's asked you to do. And then you just could work, work, work. And he goes, okay, now we're going to change guitars and get a different sound, but we're going to do the same part. Okay, so wow. that's, that's dialing up a bunch of new amps. And yeah. that takes, like, forever. And then... Okay, well, not, but play it this way more. You know, like there were so many variables there, um, and, and then just and then he would take time off. Okay, well, I'm going to go and do something. So just go relax for the rest of the day. And I'd be at his house, just hanging around or something. You know, and he'd watch TV or we'd shut the, the the console off. He'd say soccer games on, and that would be three hours. You know, so <laughs> so it wasn't just recording; it was life. You know, yeah, uh, I, I get it. I, um, and, and it's kind of like what it is. And and you probably had mountains of gear at that point to to go through too, right? Like like that was the heyday of all that stuff. You guys must have had shit tons of guitars and amps and effects and all kinds of stuff, right? Well, we certainly had more than like say cuts like a knife reckless days because we made a, more of an effort to get stuff, and that that was fine. But even then, I consider what we used. I think oh, we got so much better stuff now. I mean, we, even since the nineties on, we kind of really went for it and just. You know, we're just trying to fill up the closet kind of thing. Well, I'd love to get this, love to get that. And, but the problem is now I'm at a point where I'm looking at all this stuff going, this is a shame because I'm never going to use any of this stuff. It's terrible. And I could make an effort to get rid of it. So did you, did you go through a period where you were, uh, where you were um, uh, acquiring a, a ton of stuff? Like, do you have a gazillion guitars? Well, I had probably too, obviously too many. I, I, <laughs> yeah, there was a point. I think in the 90s, we, we probably... You know, but not so much Brian, certainly me. I really wanted to, to, to really go for it and try to just have fun with it, you know. Things yeah. were doing, going pretty well for us. And sure. I thought this is a good opportunity. And I, I wasn't nuts. I, I didn't think. We just wanted to use the stuff and yeah. see what it was like. And uh, and then the other things say, well, if you do this, it's an investment, which it never really is. But you, know, that, you could get talked into that a little bit. That was probably a, a fun time to be in that zone, too, because like you could actually find deals on like vintage stuff. Like it hadn't gone through the roof mm-hmm. yet either, right? Like you no, it hadn't gone. 50000 bucks it, for it, a Strat. I, I, you, that's ridiculous, man. <laughs> I mean, I, I just, that, fortunately for us, no, we never went that far. I mean, the most I spent for a Strat was... And that was the very last Strat I bought over that kind of money. Was uh, it was like down at, in, in L.A. in the early '90s, and then I was okay. I'm not going to buy any more after this. And <laughs> it was five. It was five grand or something. It was like, oh my gosh. So yeah. But but then we got. It was like he's a massive country fan, and he loved uh, Clarence White. I don't know if you know who that yeah, is, but of course uh, I do. Yeah. The, 
Mr. Bebender, and he... I just saw Roland last week, actually, his brother. Oh, wow. Okay, wow. Yeah, because I know he's still active there, right? Yeah, he is. Um, Sorry, go ahead. Um, I was just say he, he would always reference, do the Clarence White thing. He would always use that. And I said, I didn't barely know. I mean, the birds, you know, the <laughs> sweethearts of the rodeo. But I mean, I just, you know, I just, how does this fit into, is your mama going to miss you? It doesn't even, you know, it's yeah. like, okay, it, it doesn't really work. You know? But he, that, it was more about the vibe, you know, he, ah. he used all, he, he loved Randy Travis and I mean, he was mad for country music. Really? I guess hence when he met Shania, he, he said, just, this is what I want to do. Wow. Yes, yeah. Were you down with spending that much time on stuff or were you frustrated or how, how were you like feeling musically at that point? Well, I, to, honestly, I was terrified that we would have to go and do another record like that because <laughs> much work is, but a magic thing happened in the mid nineties. It was a thing called pro tools. Yeah. And when the next record, we had a, a bit of that going on and we got to record Mickey and Matt could say, well, you know, I can record the guy and I can move it to the, to the groove or the swing that I want it to mm-hmm. in my own, in my own time. So that kind of changed the game with and we, the next record only took about a year to make. So I, mean, I say in pieces because it started in, in France, went to Jamaica and then went back to France again because they were doing offshore stuff, you know, yeah. and, so, so that the the first record you did with Mutt Lang that was all on tape. Yeah, it was on digital tape. Yeah, and wow. then we went to yeah to the computer in the mid '90s. I think they finally made software that where you could do that. So Pro Tools you could record into, and from that there was no turning back after that. And the great thing is we were able to use a real drummer, which I thought you know was way better in the end as far as the organic sort of presentation of what Brian is and. You know, and then we did Please Forgive Me, which was all session. It was Mickey, myself, Hutch Hutchinson on bass. Oh, he's great. Robbie Buchanan on organ, David Page on piano, and Brian. And that was like, it was great. It was off the floor for the most part. Oh, so that was a real was, shift. Yeah, it was a shift again because I saw Mutt had started to go to Nashville and saw how great everybody was. He yeah. said, wow, you can, these guys can play perfectly in time and everything. So he got an acoustic guitar, but I can't remember the guy's name older guy uh-huh. and he was playing acoustic to it and uh and there was another guitar player who's still kicking around um he was with um lone justice and a few people but he did all the really nice jangly arpeggiated parts okay and he played a gretch through a twin or something and so we had all these great people in the room and and it came off the floor so and then manipulated or was it pretty much like it like what you hear is is how it went down i think for the most part it was yeah it was what it is but only manipulated as far as cutting bars in and out and mm-hmm. finding things they like better but yeah yeah i don't think they i didn't have to do nearly as much work the solo was a bit of work but so i remember i remember what was pretty he was pretty well done by then i think he was he he brought shania to the session he just met her and he yeah he was moved in his head he moved on he wanted to go do that he didn't oh, okay. want to make rock records he wanted oh. to do country records so. that's what my feeling was but but he i, I tell you man that guy was he's a level above anything i've ever worked with he really was, just on a human level, first of all, he was one of my favorite people I've ever worked with. Uh-huh. And uh, just his knowledge and his concentration, I mean, wow. 
That's, just, yeah, that requires you know, an amazing amount of patience and concentration. Yeah, whether you like his, his presence, his music or not, I mean, it's, you know, everybody's different, but uh, I just I was impressed. I never felt like I was being flogged to death. I always felt like I was being, you know, inspired. You know, uh-huh. he was really great in, in every way. I just, I miss him, you know, I haven't talked to him for years. But One thing that I find really not- notable about that is that you guys and you in particular were never like, it never seemed to come up that there was like going to be a session guy brought in to replace you. Not that you needed to be replaced or anything, but that I feel like that in that era that takes somebody like really stepping up to the plate and being like, no, we're, we're going to use Keith because he's badass and not have some, you know, LA session guy in there uh, doing all the parts, which happened all the time. Well, that's what I thought that happened. I thought Lucas came in and did all my parts for me. And I, that, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm still mystified by that. I say, why didn't you get a real guy in here? You would have taken you half the time. <laughs> it just seems like every pop rock guy of that era, that's what was happening. So was the producer like really acknowledging you as being as awesome as you were? Or was it Brian saying like, no, we're, I'm not going to, bring Steve Lukather in or whoever I, we're going to use Keith. Like how, how, how did that not happen ever? I don't know. I, I'm really quite shocked by it because I know that I have so many shortcomings for many things. And I, I'm just, I'm just really grateful that they gave me a shot and a chance. And I, and I had to learn, I, I know in the in cuts like a night, Brian was, was a little bit concerned that I wasn't going to be able to cut it and they were talking about it, I'm sure. But uh, in the end, he gave me a chance. And uh, when I, when I had to come through, like, I mean, he always likes to tell the story about the solo for cuts like a knife and we were sitting in New York and playing and I'm playing and he goes, yeah, it's okay. And uh, Bob steps out and Brian, Bob steps out to go take a phone call in the lobby and Brian's there, he goes, fuck this. He he's, just play. You know what to do. And he pushed the record, and I start. With, he goes, do that thing with the with the descending whammy uh-huh. bar, first lick, and it just went from there. And he came back, and Bob goes, "What'd you do?" He said, "This is what he do. You don't fucking drop him in. You let him go." And he plays the solo. He goes, "Okay, it's done." And but we spent like three hours trying to come up with something really clever. Yeah. But you know, <laughs> but that's somehow how it goes. You know, and the, and the everything I do solo was hilarious too. Yeah, tell me about that because that's that's an iconic solo, man. It's it's classic. I know, and it, and it sort of reiterates that you you never know what's going to come, and you never know how it's going to turn out. You never know how it's going to be received. You just like do it, and you hope like hell that, and you move on to the next thing. But I remember that that song came in at the end of the Waking Up the Neighbors session. We virtually we'd moved everything up into the studio in North London called Battery, and we finally got Mutt to work because he was. You know, he tends to, you know, go off and live like a human being, which it's it's frustrating because you want him to work and get it done so we can go. But anyway, we moved everything up. We were just barreling through all the tracks because we were in a real studio and there was no distraction. And this movie company says, we want a song for this movie with Kevin Costner. It's about uh, Robin Hood. And some other people have sent songs in, but... The movie company doesn't like them. So Brian and Mutt put this song together. He basically says, okay, and he, they take the script of the movie and they take a highlighter and they go through all the lines on it. Like, <laughs> all the, like, uh, I die for you. Anything that was you know, in the script, you know. Uh-huh. And they got the lyric. The, Michael Kamen was the uh, guy who wrote the soundtrack for the cool. film. He sent, he sent them this little 30-second blurb of him in the middle of the night playing on his little keyboard going 
whistling really of this little theme. Yeah, it was just like a like a clavinet sound. Yeah, and it was like thirty seconds. That was it. Just two pieces of like uh, a verse and a B verse. So that that's all they had. And it showed up, and he goes, okay. And Mutt says, oh, I like the melody's cool. I think we can do something with that. And then we went, came back from the weekend, and Mutt said, Brian, did you come up with a middle eight for that little bit? He said, no, nah, not really. He goes, well, I think I got something. So Mutt plays the D minor part. He goes, well, I think this is worth I'm going to put it together. So everything stopped. They threw the track together. I played acoustic guitar on it. And then they wanted the song yesterday, so he says, you've got to throw a solo down the middle. And I'm hearing the changes go by. I go, ooh, this could be fun if I do my David Gilmore impersonation <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. So I, I, we dial up a quick sound. And these guys in the movie company are yakking behind us <laughs> and irritating the shit out of me. And they're like, oh, I'm, 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 they're from the, you know, whatever, <laughs> talking away. And Mutt's looking, he goes, he looks and he looks at me and he goes, it's going to be okay. <laughs> he calms <laughs> me down. <laughs> you can see him getting irritated. Yeah. <laughs> well, and he just just play. So he played, got the first lick. Second lick was uh, him. Mutt goes, now play this. He sings it to me. Play that. And then Brian goes, da 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 da. And then, <laughs> and then he goes at the end, do, do, do. And that was it. And it was by committee. And it happened in 20 minutes. And then he goes, okay, now play 10 of them like that and I'll go get a really good one and that was it the song came it's a piece of shit it's not going on our record turns into this massive song yeah and you have to do your record and the and the head of A&M Jerry Moss says Brian if you put this on your record your career will be finished holy shit wow <laughs> so there's all this sort of negative thing going on with the song but the song became a massive hit regardless of what anybody thought because the people chose and that was the end of it so yeah. but i mean it, it's a burden in a way and some of it's not but the story behind it and how it gets done is always the most fascinating to me because you're thinking this thing's like it's not going to do anything there's nothing to it you know <laughs> but you don't know you have no idea and that's i guess the biggest lesson you learn is that we have no idea what's going to happen exactly and timing and and all that you know so in the video for that song, you're playing that Gretsch, which also like probably sent Gretsch's um, stock through the roof. Were you, did you actually play a Gretsch on that track? No, no, that was the, <laughs> the tragedy because uh, they said, we're going to do a video of that song. And I said, okay, where are we doing? He goes, oh, they're going out to Southwest England in the forest. It's like Sherwood Forest. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And I think, what, what guitar should I bring? Well, I don't know. It doesn't matter. <laughs> what's going to stand out in a green forest? Oh, I've got my orange scratch here. That'll be orange and green. That's going to stick out like a sword. I wanted to get to art as you see. And I just brought that, which I bought that guitar from a guy in Vancouver called Alex Vardy. I think he used to write for the tour. Just I know Alex very well. Then it's, it was Alex's and I bought it from him prior to that session. That's the guitar, the 57, uh, 61, 20. And yeah, it, but it was not on the record, uh, not on that song. It was on a couple of little bits, but that's really funny. Anyway, so in lieu of that, the Gretsch people were very grateful that I was using a Gretsch on a video that got so much airplay. Yeah, and they contacted me and they said, if you ever wanted a Gretsch of any kind, we would be happy to make you one. Wow. And I said, well, I. I I don't know. I don't really play Gretsch, honestly. I can't play Gretsch. My my gig revolves 
much different equipment. So, but they were very, very kind. And it was at that time, Fred and his partner, Dinah, Fred Gretsch had, he would kind of assume the name back because it was a defunct company. They uh, went bankrupt and he wanted to get the country, uh, the company going again. Yeah. And him, him being an actual Gretsch family member, he thought, I'm going to go buy the company and secure it and get it going again. And so he was looking for people to help endorse the product line. So, mm-hmm. you know, here, here's free publicity. Here's me playing this Gretsch. And uh, he said, we'll make you, make you one. So we kind of threw a couple ideas. I said, do you, do you ever make a gold Gretsch? He goes, no. We've never made one production-wise. So, well, let's do a gold 6120. Let's see what happens. And a bunch of guys came to my house with calipers and just measured my Gretsches and kind of went from there. And some prototypes showed up a few awesome. months later. Yeah. And that was the KS model that which unfortunately I don't really play much because there's no space for it in our set anymore. Brian can play them, but not me. Okay. Okay. So that was, that was an interesting story. And I, I felt so bad because I wanted to promote them as much as I could. And Fred wanted me to play it live. And I said, listen, it just, there's just no way. I had a white Falcon out there for a while <laughs> when we were all dressed in white. But it's just really hard when you're doing parts that, it just doesn't require that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when you're out with Brian, like more recently, like in the last 10 years or so, are you guys carrying a huge arsenal of guitars or, or is it pretty scaled down? It's scaled down. They, we were trying to keep it simple. I wish we could, you know, we used to have like maybe a dozen or so out. I mean, I go see guys now. I see Joe Perry's got 30 guitars. Joe Bonamassa has got 40 guitars. <laughs> I mean, this is ridiculous. I just want to get the, the songs done and go and get out of there and go do the next one. You know, I don't yeah. want to worry about it. So, and when you get used to one neck, you kind of, you know, you know where to go. And then if you start switching them around, I don't know. It, it can get, you know, convoluted. So we keep it simple. What are your, what are your favorites? Like if you had to pick two or three guitars that would be the ones that you would keep, what would they be? Oh, the desert Island ones. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, um, I mean, live is what it is. I don't try to bring anything too precious out there in case the damage and all that. Right. And I'm my, I have, I'm really hard physically on guitars. So, right. but the ones I have at home, I love the most. There's, I bought a, a 59 a Maple Neck Strat in 1986 for the end of the fire session. Yeah. That's probably my the one I play the most at home. My wife bought me a 54 for my 40th birthday wow. uh, in 1994. So that one's close runner. I have a 54 Telly I love. Um, I have uh, a couple of nice Les Pauls. I have a 58 uh, burst that I bought from a guy in Vancouver in the late 90s when you could actually afford them. Yeah. Uh, they didn't cost as much as a house. But uh, um, things like that, like you said earlier, you know, it's like we, we started to look at things and collect when they were actually affordable. You could get a guitar for a few thousand dollars. And yeah. And they started making them six figures. You went, no, um, that's <laughs> not right. So. so none of those classic ones go out on the road with you? No, not anymore. I, I might have had them in the past when they went. I didn't think about it, but I I keep that stuff at home now. It, this is too risky now. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and the one I have a '63, which I've had for years, and that's the bulk of it because that's my favorite. It's like, to, yeah, I know I can beat the heck out of that, and it'll it'll stay in tune and all that. Yeah. And there's a reissue gold top Les Paul 
when you guys play live, are you playing like at full volume these days or do you, has that scaled down too? Like, are you playing through smaller amps and stuff? Or are you, are you still rocking the, the full stacks and everything? <laughs> well, funny you say that we, we really made a big shift in, in the last few years. And I think Brian decided, well, for the sake of the sound, man, we put every of uh, the speakers went into boxes under the stage. So, okay. so he's got more control and the singer yep. struggling or whatever. You can't hear him. And the drum kit's bring into the mic. So, um, so yeah, the speakers went down. We still kept a back line on stage, and now that's gone as of a few years ago. So there's nothing on stage. It's completely clean. All the amp heads are to the side. Okay. There's no speakers. Everything is in the ears. Yeah. A little bit of side built for effect. And uh, and now we're out in the house. We're using software to help with sound. So we'll dial up something from 11 that's really clear and clean. Yeah. And it's all programmed, so the guy pushes a button for each song, and the right song comes up. And he's got amp sound with some effect, amp sound with no effect from the stage, and he's got you know a million sounds in his software arsenal to complement that. So wow. we're kind of cheating a bit that way. But we still are using amps, which is great. Yeah, yeah. And, and no stage volume, obviously, because everything's, everything's boxed away, so you've got drums, and that's about it. Yeah, that's pretty well it. Yeah. Amazing. So I'm just curious, like, as far as you, as far as you go, like, musically and artistically, you've obviously dedicated your life to to Brian's r- recording and touring. Um, does it ever come up for you that you want to like pursue some of your own stuff and like make some Keith Scott records or or get into that, or are you just happy doing what you're doing? Or yeah, I mean, I, I do. I I put it together a fictitious surf band thing years ago. The friend of mine in Vancouver. And, you know, it was just something to do. And it was more of his thing because he was, uh, at that time, he was a, he was an ex-musician that was working in the film business on location recording. He was an engineer. Mm-hmm. So he would record local sound when they were filming. But he said, I've got this idea for a pilot. It's like a comedy show. It's a guy that he's a tour guide and he takes people out on his fishing boat and they get in all kinds of trouble. And he... <laughs> He said, I need some music. And he was at a Christmas party I was at. And I said, oh, come to my house. We'll, we'll throw a couple, scratch a couple of things together. So we started and he put this pilot together and it was like three or four ideas. And he said, ah, it didn't get picked up. I said, we're almost halfway to a, a record. We should just make a surf. It was all surf based. He wanted a surf guitar thing. And he gave right. me a record by this guy called the Blue Stingrays. Yeah. He said, I want it like this. And which was an amazing band, I think from Australia or something. So let's just do something. Let's do a record and we'll have fun and we'll finish it. We may put some work into it. It'll take nothing to finish it. Well, it took forever because <laughs> I got Pat to play on it. I got Mickey to play on it. I got all these people and I'd go on tour, come back and, you know, do a little bit of work on it and go away again. So that there's that. It's called the Fontanas. Oh, okay. And I, we came up with that name. I don't know why, but, and then I put a second one together and it's sitting in my computer right now. we would be mixed with my friend in England. He's a producer engineer and, so that should come out this year. What What's that one that's finished? Is that um, is that more like instrumental surf kind of stuff, or is it a different vibe? Yeah, it, it's yeah, it's part two. It's just okay, the second cool. one. And yeah. when I moved to California uh, eleven years ago, I or more than that, yeah, twelve years ago now. So when I moved here, I was I'm in Surfland here. Sure, I don't sure. know why. I just. Um, I don't surf, but I thought, well, it's the vibe here. And I would, on, when I was just sitting around, I would just come up with stuff and record them on a cassette, go into my workstation and, and demo everything. So I had a dozen things 
I went and got my friends to play on it again, Pat and Vicky. Yeah. And I and I just overdubbed everything and made another one. So that's ready to go. And then there's all kinds of stuff. I, I just listened to a bunch of things I've been doing there. It's more instrumental, like arpeggiated sort of chord ideas with melodies behind them, acoustic cool. stuff. Okay. Yeah, there's there's stuff sitting in there that I need to finish. I just have to stop touring to go do it, <laughs> which is a, which is what I do the most. So, and and what's your tour schedule like these days? Like you're out, like he, you're busy, right? Like he's he's at it. Yeah, it, he's uh, he's on a on the warpath to go tour. He's got young girls at home, and he wants to be out of the house. I'm kidding, but he's <laughs> um, he's you know he loves the tour. He loves to sing, and he knows that's that's the way you do it nowadays. You got to stay visible, and yeah. So he's uh, last two three years has been around around the planet a few times. So and um, and when you when you're going out on tour with him, do you guys like get together and rehearse, or are you just like hopping on a plane and get going to the gig? Well, no amount of rehearsal will ever make us even worthy because we suck. But no, I, <laughs> no, we don't rehearse. We just go, and if we haven't played for a few months, we at sound check. We just make sure that we know what the set is, and yeah, yeah, we've been doing it for long enough where it comes back pretty quick. So. That's amazing. Like considering the, the the size of the gigs that you're doing, that's it's awesome. I love it. It's very stripped down and and straight up. I like it. Well, yeah, we that's we we're one of the last few amigos that do that. A lot of people run tape uh, in the last few years, and that's we're, we're one of them that still does and warts and all kind of thing. And yeah, yeah we we do screw up. We're old, you know. We're <laughs> we're real, but you know, we we still you know love being with each other and. There's a lot of history there, and specifically the drummer and Brian and myself, who's Mickey recorded the the record before me. He was involved before I met him, and then I met him on the Cuts Like a Knife thing. And he's been a, a part of, if not in part or fully, of pretty well every record that Brian's ever made. So, and Pat Stewart, like he came in just as a live drummer for a few years. Is that what what like he didn't play on records? Well, we needed a guy, and after 1983, we had a guy from New York doing uh, Mickey's parts. Mickey was fully involved with Hall & Oates, and then we had nobody. Yeah, so we had nobody uh, to do the live from 84 after Reckless, because it was... But, Brian, we found this guy, Pat, who was playing in this band, this ska band. (laughs) He had amazing energy, and we thought... He'd be great, you know. He's a local guy. We can rehearse with him. He lives here, as opposed to some guy, you know, you know, yeah. to fly him in to rehearse. And so we worked with Pat, and he went out and did the reckless tour. But he also played on Summer of '69 on the track, and I think uh, Kids Wanna Rock. Those are both his drum oh, tracks. Cool. So, and he's hilariously in 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 the video too. I, I I've seen that, and I know Pat really well, so uh, it's awesome to see him in that video when he's like probably 18 or 19 or something. Yeah, he was like twenty or so. Yeah, he was young, young, and we loved him. He had a great vibe, and he played he played great on those tracks. So yeah, were, it was undeniable. So, right yeah, so he, that's where we got him involved, and then he came out. We were doing Into the Fire, we were about to do Into the Fire in nineteen eighty six. We had this one tour in the, in the, in America with uh, it was what the heck was it? It was Amnesty International, and it was like at that time was. Peter Gabriel, U2, uh, all these sort of these like topical sort of themed bands. And we did that, and then that was Pat's last tour we did with him. But Brian decided that he wanted to try and get Mickey in the band, and mm-hmm. 
and that's kind of what it went. And, and unfortunately, we had to say goodbye to Pat because the guy that was playing on the records was available finally. So, right. for the most part. But yeah. anyway, but we still have Pat. We he came and played with us last summer in that's this awesome. one-off thing. We he did he did the one this uh, last weekend, and he's a lot of fun. Uh, thanks so much for spending some time with me here today. I, I know I took up a bunch of your time, but um, I really appreciate no hearing all this stuff, man. This is fantastic. All right, good. It's great to to, uh, to reconnect and, and touch base. It's, it's all good, and I wish you the best, man. Thanks so much, Keith. I appreciate it, man. All right, and uh, any more questions, let me know in the future if you want to ask anything else. Okay, will do. Talk thanks, to you Keith. soon, I hope. Bye. You bet. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. That was my conversation with Keith Scott. Hope you enjoyed it. I will be back in a couple of weeks for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. We'll see you then. Over and out. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. <laughs>